is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast in partnership with Scottish Enterprise. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor, Ed Reed, and content editor, Andrew Dykes. Hello, chaps. Um, uh, uh, well, Ed, I think we've had our allocation of good weather up here in Aberdeen. How's London? I mean, it's amazing. It's it's like uh, we're, we're heading for the high 20s down here, baby. Oh, come on. I don't need to hear that this morning. It's like overcast up here, man. The forecast this morning had 16 in Edinburgh and 22 oh. on Sky, at which point I was like, what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> Uh, we've, uh, to be fair, we've had some pretty decent weather in Aberdeen in these past few weeks, and I was just complaining to Hamish in the office yesterday that it's like a glass, a glass house. Um, but I th- You're just never happy, Alistair. I know. I'm just, I'm just a grim boy. <laughs> yeah, but no, we're twelve degrees overcast today, so there we are. But it looks like it might get better over the weekend. So um, that is your Energy Boys weather forecast for this week. <laughs> do please do tune back in. I know it's what everyone comes here for. Um, so I had a piece to talk about all lined up for today, but given the breaking news as we record this morning, we'll get into it. A price floor being introduced for the North Sea windfall tax. Um, since November, when this tax was hiked up to 35%, there's been only one main realistic ask from the industry, as far as I know, and that was indeed a price floor. So a mechanism by which this tax would fall away if oil and gas prices fell to historically more normal levels, as the government has put it this morning. So that's being granted, um, and I think fair to say a win for the industry, much like myself, they're never happy. <laughs> but uh, there's, a, there's no, uh, it's a win for the industry, but there is a degree of, this is still a, a, a punitive tax, which uh, could still drive out investment, but at least there is that I guess that insurance policy now, if it does fall down, industry will not be just crippled by this. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this had been a bandwidth issue from the government. They had been pre- apparently been looking at a, a price floor in March, and it was then kind of shelved, it seems. Um, it's hard to see how this hasn't been brought back up on the agenda by Labour's Recent policies on the North Sea, um, clearly something of a, a political point for the conservatives among industry, among business, and I dare say, I dare say communities uh, whose economies are reliant on the energy industry, like uh, that in Aberdeen. So we've seen uh, 90% of producers cut spending due to the windfall tax, the energy profits levy. And this policy says, in a nutshell, that that 35% tax will be dropped if prices return, as I say, to these more normal levels. So what does that look like? Oil and gas prices need to fall to or below $71.40 per barrel of oil or 54 pence per therm for gas for two consecutive quarters. Now, since last summer, uh, oil prices really have dropped back and gas prices have dropped back to more average kind of levels anyway. Gas at around 60 pence a therm from a peak of six pounds. Oil roughly $75 a barrel, down from $130 last year, uh, both obviously on the on the rise after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So many are kind of arguing already the windfall conditions have gone, so the tax should go, if you like. Um, and that's kind of how the industry's reacting. <clears throat> Industry figures have welcomed it, um, highlighting, as I say, this is a kind of punitive tax still. Uh, if the prices don't fall uh, further, then this will still be on the go until 2028. 
uh, and that would still drive investment out the industry. Um, OE UK saying, uh, yeah, windfall conditions, when the windfall conditions go, the windfall tax should go. Uh, on the flip side of that, of course, we have NGOs saying uh, oil and gas firms are still making huge profits, and this is the wrong decision, comes as households are struggling with bills. So I guess in terms of where does that leave us, it does leave us with a couple of immediate questions around, does this do enough to stem that drop in investment that we've seen um, in recent times due to this this levy? Um, more specifically, there's a couple of specific industry questions I'd be quite interested to hear more on and we'll be pursuing in coming days. We have seen, for example, Ithaca Energy, the Cambo oil field, they've said that reforms to the windfall tax is kind of a, it's kind of getting that um, Cambo FID is kind of hinged on reforms to the EPL. And I think at a minimum, that would have included the price floor. It would be interesting to see now to what extent they feel um, this goes far enough and whether it will help them reach that investment decision. We obviously have Harbour Energy who have um, been well, they've announced they're cutting 350 jobs, uh, going to fall in their North Sea team. Obviously, that means the majority of which in Aberdeen. Um, and they're already making reported moves in for, for a merger with Talos Energy in the Gulf of Mexico. So does this come too little too late for them? As I say, it's just a price floor. It doesn't mean that the tax is getting lifted. And I think the other thing, just immediately off the top of the head, is how is, you know, okay, Big oil haven't really been too damaged by the windfall tax. I think that's probably fair to say. The independent North Sea producers, the smaller ones, they've been much more disproportionately hit. And that is where I think, again, this nuance doesn't come in. But when the big oil, uh, what, half-year results come out, how are they going to play this in terms of the tax breaks um, versus their, their still pretty hefty profits? Let's be honest. So that's kind of what's on my mind for now, as we respond to this uh, EPL announcement. So in terms of, um, I suppose, responses, right? I, I, I Just as you've been talking, I got, I got an email from Greenpeace, uh, who, who who obviously have taken uh, umbrage with, uh, with, with, with the changes. Um, they say the UK's got some of the lowest oil and gas tax rates in the world. Um, the, the, the tax these companies pay should be higher permanently. Um, do you think um do you think that's uh do you think that's true and i suppose also given the uh as we've discussed you know a number of times before the the, the chances of a political change next year looking fairly likely right a labor labor government obviously kirsten has been talking recently uh about about sort of i suppose labor's approach to uh, to 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 the north sea do you think that any changes the Conservatives make will, frankly, not last very long. Anyway. Well, uh, yeah, that's the million, the, the billion-dollar question, uh, Ed. <laughs> I, I think I think the, the overriding message from the industry has been, yeah, okay, you know, we're happy to pay our taxes, but what they need to do is pay their taxes at a con- on a consistent basis. And if there's kind of um, these knee-jerk reactions, these knee-jerk policy reactions, this is an industry that invests over many years to get from a discovery to a you know a first oil, for example. So if there's huge changes in the fiscal regime, that really dents investor confidence, really dents um, the, the ability of, of businesses to, to, to invest in the North Sea. I think in principle, you know, I've certainly heard people in the past saying, oh, well, you know, a higher tax rate in Norway. Yes, but the Norwegians have been pretty consistent in that higher tax rate. I think that really is the key there. Um, so 
I think if there was a, gar a guarantee of some kind that things wouldn't change, um, perhaps that's a discussion that, that could be had. Um, in terms of will it change under Labour, well, uh, if, if, if what they've been saying is, is to be believed, then, then perhaps. Um, we obviously had the announcement we talked in the podcast last week regarding the, the licensing policy um, that they announced in the Sunday Times. I'm getting the sense, speaking to companies um, on background, is that they're kind of just waiting to see what the official lines are going to be from Labour on their actual policies. Clearly, there's a degree here of testing the waters with the public on what's going to work on, on this policy, that policy. Businesses can't have a knee-jerk reaction to that. That said, yeah, um, just to get to your question, uh, Labour have said they would tax the industry more heavily and that they would remove the investment incentives linked to the windfall tax. So... Uh, it does seem that we're in line for more change, um, and that probably would be a, a pretty negative signal to the industry. Certainly, we've seen some warnings about what a Labour government would mean for the North Sea. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of where we stand. So I, I, think, I think what this does do in terms of the price floor is if we had another COVID, and heaven forbid we don't, but you know, we saw what happened to you know, 30,000 jobs lost from the North Sea from the UK oil and gas industry due to prices falling during COVID. If we had a 75% tax rate on the industry and then oil prices collapsing and no backstop to prevent the kind of calamity that would involve, then clearly that would be pretty catastrophic for the North Sea. At least having this will have uh, some kind of benefit, whether or not Labour keeps that or indeed changes things more radically uh, remain to be seen. And that's probably my ramble. Correct me if I'm wrong, Alistair, but... This, so this is uh, uh, a policy that was in place in the first round of windfall yes. tax, right? That it would recede at this historically normal levels. That was then reversed in November when that kind of insurance policy, as you put it, was removed. So we're back to where we were a year ago, only now we have a number. Because that was the sort of great contention at the time was, what does historically normal look like? Everyone went, eh, about 70 years. Yeah. <laughs> but there wasn't this actual official, this official you know, fully concrete floor of like, this is what we want. Yeah. So it seems like kind of one step forward, one step back in, in that sense on, on a policy front. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing I, I find kind of interesting and, and slightly uh, slightly amusing from a long-term perspective is the the prospect of everyone around the uh, the UK energy sector suddenly praying for oil prices to go down <laughs> in a way, in, a, in an unprecedented fashion. And, and in the same week that Saudi announces an output cut purely to keep prices up, there's a really uh, interesting kind of perverse dynamic in that. Um, but it will be interesting to see how it plays out. I'm, I'm intrigued by how that will affect their calculations on like liability and things. Mm -hmm. Because if, if you, you know, obviously you're hedging and everything else, you have an, a sense of what your income levels are going to be and production levels and everything else. But now you have a kind of third dimension of like, oh, as soon as it drops below this floor, we're not eligible for this. So what do we have like scenario A, scenario B? I mean, I'm really intrigued to see how the sort of Q2 results reflect that. But also for, for six months, right? So you need, the, you need low prices, yeah. well, under $71 for, for six months before, it, before there's any changes. So like even... It, it doesn't feel it's going to have a massive impact, uh, say, this month. Sure, it? sure. It's, it's definitely going to need a new uh, a new spreadsheet document, isn't it, really? <laughs> Let's bust out some new Excel, guys. <laughs> Things are getting spicy. Back of the napkin, yeah. Yeah, I think everyone will be keeping a closer eye on OPEC uh, going forward. But yes, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point, Andy. So uh, let's see what happens. Um, okay, I think we're probably going to park the windfall tax there. I'm sure we'll be back to this in much more depth in the 
coming weeks, but we'll be back with, well, something completely different with Andy right after this. The Making Scotland's Future Conference, previously known as the Scottish Manufacturing Advisory Service National Manufacturing Conference, will take place on the 22nd of June at the Royal Bank of Scotland Gogoburn HQ in Edinburgh. A key highlight in Scotland's manufacturing calendar, this year's event has a strong focus on productivity and emerging opportunities. Businesses attending can expect to take part in workshops and best practice sessions on topics including supply chain resilience, industry 4.0 technologies, leadership and culture, operational excellence and sustainability. Book today by visiting makingscotlandsfutureconference.scot. Okay, switching to emissions now, looking, well, way out into outer space, Andy, or at least inner orbit, um, something of a, well, a, a global security camera for, for methane. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, so uh, this month uh, I reported on uh, a project by the Environmental Defence Fund, EDF, not the uh, French state-backed nuclear firm, just to make that clear off the top. Um they have uh, a plan for this thing called methane sats, which is a satellite to monitor and measure methane emissions across the planet. Um, so yeah, a rare venture for Energy Voice into inner space. Um, but it, it was a really interesting, it's a, product, a project I've followed since 2018, I think, when they first announced it, uh, in a previous life, in a previous uh, publication reporting on it then, and kind of their big plans at the time, and then uh, full circle revisiting that this year. Uh, kind of just ahead of their their launch uh, next year with with the full project all ready to go. So it's worth a quick step back. You know, methane emissions. We hear a lot about emissions from industry, but I think within that, methane is a really specific challenge for the oil and gas sector. So, of all uh, global methane emitted by human activity, oil and gas operations account for about thirty eight percent. And uh, while it doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long as CO2, it is far more potent. So I think the estimations are about 80 times the warming power of, of CO2 over the first 20 years of the molecule's life. Um, so in the upstream North Sea sector, we have the target to uh, have methane emissions by 2030 compared to a 2018 baseline. On the data that I could find, I think from Offshore Energies UK, that equates to about 50,000 tons down to about 25,000 tons of emissions uh, per year. More than half of that is from venting and about 30% from flaring. Uh, and I think most of those are usually in sort of safety cases and the sort of startup of, of assets. Uh, and there's a very minor bit from power generation as well. As it stands, the UK as a whole, and not just oil and gas, uh, we're very much off target to meet our national methane reductions targets, which is a 30% cut by 2030, which we agreed at COP26. So that's got the kind of uh, local... Set, scene setting, as it were. Um, but yeah, this this uh, satellite will be launched next year. The goal is to, quote, motivate and enable the global oil and gas sector to slash its methane emissions by 45% by 2025 and 70% by 2030. So if those targets were met, uh, EDF has said it would have a similar climate impact over the 20-year period as closing one-third of the world's coal plants. So it's backed by Harvard University and the Smithsonian, the plan is to be able to monitor at least 80% of global hydrocarbon production. So a huge, huge amount of, uh, of production is going to be under their microscope, as it were. Uh, and they'll be able to do it down to specific sites and assets. Wow. Uh, and they're going to be running that as uh, a targeted uh, data tracking exercise. This isn't a, a sort of Google Earth thing where they just scan and... Aww. Take a quick look, you know, they're going to be, t <laughs> it, it will be very vast and very good, but it won't be a kind of constant monitoring thing. They're going to pick specific places to monitor and do these little kind of targeting runs. Have they said anything about, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds incredible. Uh, and, and I think, 
wow, what, what a game changer in terms of really bringing everything to light. Have they said anything about how they're going to... Because it's one satellite, right? We're going around one line. Um, so clearly there'll, there'll be a finite space to cover initially, I suppose, in terms of what they can and can't do. Have they decided... Have they said anything about how they're going to pick and choose their their targets or what they'll they'll prioritize? Yeah, so I spoke to a lead chief scientist and uh, EDF senior vice president Steve Hamburg about it. He's been leading the project since uh, since 2018. Um, so the, the the goal is to kind of take these 200 kilometer slices. So they will travel around again. They they have targets. He wouldn't tell me what the targets were, but I think <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty to choose from. Um, it will be these 200 kilometer slices. Uh, with the pixel size of 100 meters by 400 meters. If you imagine kind of the maximum size of one image is about 100 by 400 meters. I, I, I never know distances. It, roughly the size of a football pitch? <laughs> two football pitches? Sure. I'm really bad with it. <laughs> Olympic swimming pools? <laughs> Let's, yeah, Let's say scientific. that. Uh, so they'll, they'll take a, a line over these 200 kilometers, and then that will also allow them to... Um, track where these kind of plumes from any assets are, are traveling as well. And in terms of detail, um, it will be down to areas of one kilometer square, picking up uh, sources of emissions down to about 500 kilograms an hour of methane. So then at the larger scale, it's going to aggregate lots of those together. If you have, say, you know, somewhere like the Permian, I suppose we have loads and loads of wells, probably closer than, you know, one kilometer square um, apart, they will be able to kind of aggregate all those emissions together and uh, give a sense of where they actually how much is escaping and, and where it's going? I mean, in terms of sort of you know feedback from uh, from this from this satellite. I mean, obviously it's, it sounds like a like a really important step forwards, but in terms of sort of how they see that data being used, is it is it going to be sort of sent to companies? Is it sent to regulators? Is it like uh, NGOs? Here's some 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 beef you can tuck into. In a in a word, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it will be his is their their goal is to make it fully publicly available. I think the type of data and the granularity and who gets what is kind of up to the user. So he he talked specifically about their outreach with say financial organizations that might not care about the individual asset level, but will definitely care about maybe aggregated things across say like a portfolio of companies. Um, he talked about kind of. Uh, local governments or, or national governments who will be able to look at specifically stuff measured across their borders. So it's it's really a case of who needs it and what do they need it for, whether it's like a policy front, whether it's a monitoring front. But yeah, in theory, you know, that at least on their website, it will be able to, you could you know, presumably type in an asset, type in a company and uh, and bring up what the the satellite has found, where these where these emissions are coming from, the rates that they're coming from. And I think it's just an absolute order of magnitude different to, you know, even so sort of five years ago, it's it's people with FLIR cameras going to an asset or, or going around it on a boat. More recently, it's with drones and making these flights across uh, assets, for example, in the North Sea, which is you know, a big step forward. But this is still kind of, when you think about the amount of work to be done and the, the space of time that they're able to do it in, it's just... Yeah, an order of magnitude and uh, different. And and in terms of, I mean, this isn't then this isn't pie in the sky stuff. I mean, we're talking launch pretty soon. It's financed. It's it's more or less ready to go. And this is going to be a reality before too long. Yeah. So they're flying the equipment in uh, a separate sister project called Methane Air, which is uh, based in planes, uh, just to kind of test it. And also, this is uh, that that separate project will create uh, an emissions map of North America for the first time. So that's in itself is incredibly exciting. Um, and this is set to be launched yet early 2024. They've had a bit of hiccups with COVID. I think just supply chain issues uh, have affected obviously every <laughs> everyone and everything in the past few years. So I think they're a year, year or so behind on that. Um, but yeah, all being well, it's a launch via SpaceX, which could be the other hiccup potentially. I don't know. <laughs> 
we'll see where we are with them in 2024, but that, that is the plan to launch on a Falcon 9 uh, next year. Um, and he's called it uh, an era of, of radical transparency, which I like. I really, uh, th this idea that kind of no longer will it be about individual companies kind of estimating and, and going out to their assets and kind of producing these uh, estimates for corporate reports, right? This is a kind of objective yeah. and has a, a transparent record of, of what's it's going really on. really kind of empowering for like the public and the regulators and that, as you say. I think that's his hope too. And, and there's a really good TED talk by the, uh, the EDF uh, President Fred Krupps, right at the, the beginning of the launch of this project, which I think is very much in the TED Talk fashion of, of dark screen and slides, but it really sets the scene of of what, why this is important. And also, you know, he, he he begins it by saying, "I don't want you to leave feeling hopeful about the climate after this. I want you to leave feeling certain that we're doing something about it." And I think that is a really important message around what this project is going to do. Awesome. Edge, you've, you've held your breath there. What are you going to say? Go on. <laughs> no, well, I was, I was going to, I mean, I, I was just, you know, obviously, you know, when, whenever these sorts of uh, issues kind of come up, you know, I always kind of think about Nigeria, right, which has this kind of long running problem with with, with gas flaring and gas, uh, because there's, there's, there's no way to utilize it, right? So they have there's a lot of associated gas with oil production. And so it, it feels sometimes like it's it's obviously it, it, this feels like another stick to kind of you know beat the uh, beat the kind of the local players with to say this is what the problem is, but I I I wonder to what extent it, it kind of has to extend beyond that right, and I suppose that's the challenge. Maybe you know you were talking about sort of financiers, and I suppose that's kind of one way to to kind of you know highlight that problem. But it does seem like. I'm sure this is going to be useful, um, but I think that there are, you know, sort of other challenges along the way, like Nigeria. You know, will it be willing to shut in oil production in order to reduce uh, gas emissions? Historically, I suspect not. Well, when when we spoke in in 2018, you know, we had a conversation about being able to quantify these, which is, you know, a lot of it is leaks, right? A lot of it is stuff that shouldn't be coming out, but is. If you can quantify that and put a financial value on it, then that's important too, as as a carrot. If if it really needs to be that, which it shouldn't, but if you really need to convince people that like this is lost income or this is lost value to Nigeria or to, to people or for power generation, whatever you want to use gas for, you know, that in itself is an important argument amongst the other arguments of please don't emit methane, it's incredibly damaging. But you know, that those two should come in tandem. And I think, yeah, being able to kind of in theory, you know, type in how bad is this problem? bring up a data set that shows it and, and how much value is, is being lost. Again, it, it uh, can't do anything but help. Really cool story, Andy. Uh, can you see that take off? Um, I will not be volunteering for this press trip, but um, I'm sure one of you um, can do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Energy Voice is going <laughs> to stop for a trip to space, but I'm going to pitch for it. Anyway. Astronaut training? <laughs> yeah, oh, fine. Uh, okay, next up, well, we're back on terra firma, but sticking with emissions with Ed. With so much happening in the energy news cycle recently, with Labour planning on banning North Sea licences if they come to power at the next general election, and the industry waiting with bated breath for the Rosebank approval, we spoke to Offshore Energy's UK Chief Executive David Whitehouse on all things happening in the energy sector right now. Podcast out now. So Ed, uh, lots on emissions this week, lots in our supplements about kind of Western economies and scope three, but you've been looking at it from, well, a, a different lens altogether. Tell us more. 
Yeah, so I, I, I wrote a piece uh, for the supplement uh, this month about, about EVs, so electric vehicles in emerging markets. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, historically, I suppose, you know, we, we, we've tended to think about EVs, you know, sort of fancy Teslas and, you know, there's kind of, I don't know, all those sorts of, you know, bells and whistles in, in, in sort of obviously uh, extremely rich places. You know, Norway, I think, has got an extraordinary sort of penetration rate in terms of the, the, the fleet that's electrified, um, but not so much in, in, in sort of places like Africa or, or, or sort of uh, various parts of Asia. So this will be quite an interesting kind of a way to, 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 to look at, at how to tackle some of these problems. And it, it feels like um, there are these clear opportunities around things like EVs, uh, but, but possibly in slightly different ways. So um, I, I spoke to uh, a guy in, uh, in in Kenya who was who's, who's running a company where they are essentially sort of uh, creating uh, electric motorbikes uh, with, uh, with 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 swappable batteries that, uh, that that people can use for I don't know sort of local taxi service or deliveries um, and 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 then just sort of talking about the importance of um, of, of price as a driver in terms of sort of uh, making you know driving that shift to uh, to to electrified transportation which um, I think you know you maybe don't see quite so much here I mean I think there's you know I think you know there are obviously there are a number of reasons why one might buy a, a buy an EV here um but I think I think I, I suppose you know price doesn't feel like such of a such an issue um it feels like you know maybe you're doing it to uh do something nice for the environment or or, or because it's a nice fancy car but I think that that, that kind of focus on price is is I think really important um for for, for emerging markets in particular and obviously the the impact of making this change is um is in in terms of sort of tackling uh, local pollution which i think is 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 really important because for instance the motorbike fleet in um in 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 Kenya in Nairobi it's it's you know it tends to be quite old quite uh, you know sort of vehicles without um you know the the sort of some of the environmental sort of safeguards that we would see perhaps in this country and so tackling, uh, you know, those kind of emissions, which which has such a, a an impact on on local health in particular, um, you know, in in these sort of urban areas, is 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 a really uh, it obviously makes the world a better place. But a, the, the question is how to do it, and and so this this move to sort of you know swappable batteries feels like a like a really interesting way to do it. And then at the other end, um, there's a kind of you know there's a there's a, a pilot project has launched in in Nigeria around electrified buses. And it's sort of trying to again, not it's not trying to play in that sort of same sort of car, you know, sort of long distance Tesla idea. It's saying actually, what's the transportation uh, situation as it as it is now, and and how do we try and tackle that? And 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 the you know the op- where is that opportunity? And and you know electrified buses. I mean, it might work, it might not. Obviously, there are sort of challenges, particularly in Nigeria around electricity uh, and, and and sort of grid distribution. But you know, and obviously, you then start sort of moving upstream into these 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 companies. You know, they don't just need to provide uh, the infrastructure for uh, you know sort of batteries or, or or EVs. They then also need to move into a sort of power generation. So it becomes a sort of a, a knock on problem. But I think it feels like a, like a really important step in terms of sort of tackling that future demand and evolving demand for, for, for transportation in emerging markets, which obviously with the way that populations are shifting and growing, I think, you know, there's something like, is it one, there's 
more than a billion people living in India, mm. more than a billion people living in 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 China. There's, uh, you know, Nigeria's 200, bi- 200 million and it's increasing. Uganda, like these, these, these are countries that are seeing massive uh, demographic changes. And we need to do more to think about how to how to meet those transportation demands. I don't want to get away from the, it's, well, it's really interesting just to get into that challenge, uh, Ed. And I don't want to get away from the, the crux of your article, but because we're just talking about EVs, I wanted to raise it. Did anybody see um, Mr. Bean slash Rowan Atkinson's column on EVs in The Guardian? This week that caused the massive outcry. I did. I was actually discussing it last night. I, uh, I I'm a long time. I, mean, I used to write about electric vehicles. I am sort of in general very much in the pro camp. Interesting. I found his article to be quite measured, really, and I think he made a couple of points that people glossed over a little bit. I mean, it was thoroughly, supposedly thoroughly debunked by I think Simon Evans from Carbon Brief the other day. And I think some of the statistics maybe he quoted were definitely a few years out of date. But I think he did make the point of like we shouldn't really have as many vehicles as we do anyway, right? It's about these cars that sit and do kind of nothing on the street for much of their life. And uh, he, I think he did make a few salient points. I, di- I didn't feel like he, he was warranted the total cancellation <laughs> that it feels like has has been wrought upon him. I, I felt it was quite measured from, you know, a slightly skeptical point of view rather than, you know, it, it didn't seem to me as to be this kind of Tufton Street. <laughs> like, yeah. How, how, do, how dare you? Bad money backed takedown of electric vehicles. Yeah. Or, or any, any kind of climate skeptic. He obviously is a massive petrol head. And I think that probably comes into it too. But he, he seemed to be kind of quite a fan of the idea, but just the execution. What did you think? Yeah. I, I, I thought, I mean, yeah, I read, I read the column and I read Simon Evans' retort. Um, I mean, clearly the the question the question around materials, which which he made, is the one that I think I hear most frequently as regards a criticism of EVs. And I think I think the retort was something along the lines of, "Well, yes, the materials for EVs are are negative in terms of the climate impact, but when you take into account the the emissions of filling up with petrol and diesel, it kind of cancels itself out." Um, yeah, he was kind of cancelled, wasn't he? Um, massively. Um, but yeah, I, I, reading it, I thought it was fairly measured. Um, I'm not sure some of the arguments will play into what what, what Ed was discussing earlier, but um, yeah, it's it was interesting <laughs> nonetheless for sure. I mean, I, I think just kind of jumping in there. I mean, I think I suppose you know that question around you know quite how many cars we sh- we, we we actually need, right? And I think is is it's quite an interesting idea. Like obviously, mostly your car just kind of sits on the drive in front of your house for what sort of ninety percent of its life. Um, so I think, you know, maybe, maybe I mean, I think, you know, like obviously just trying to crowbar my emerging market story back desperately into this, uh, into this conversation. Sorry, sorry. I've, <laughs> Mr. I've, Bean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Bean. Uh, but, but just to say like, you know, like let's, let's, let's rethink, you know, how, how we do transportation. Like, you know, maybe we need fewer cars and, and more, you know, electric motorbikes, for instance. Doesn't feel like, you know, uh, it would be the worst thing in the world. And obviously, most trips are what? To the supermarket, you know, locally, you know, say five, ten miles. Do you need a long range, you know, Tesla or, you know, fancy Range Rover? Probably would not. Do you guys drive an electric vehicle? You know, we've got a petrol and diesel ban coming up in the UK anyway. I mean, what, what, how do you guys feel about the idea of uh, getting into an EV? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd be quite keen. I mean, I think it's it's a good move. I mean, I think there are challenges around that sort of long distance, isn't it? And it's, you know, it's like maybe two weeks a year when you want to drive to, I don't know, Cornwall or Scotland, in my case. Um, you know, what, what do you do then? And I think, you know, obviously there are kind of, you know, you know, ways that we need to rethink about how we live our lives and, you know, do transportation. But 
it feels like it's probably a good move. I'm the same. I think definitely they're they're not a silver bullet, and I think that's if to take anything away from Mr. Atkinson's article, that's definitely a fair assessment, right? This it's not that we should every single one of us should run out and buy a brand new electric vehicle, because that's absolutely not the right way to do it. But as Ed says, really rethinking how we do transport in general. I think that you know, I really enjoyed your piece and I think that the two wheeler aspect in particular, mm. where that is, you know, the the majority of transport options for so many people around the world. And I think that's really where the the cost angle can compete in terms of the battery size, in terms of kind of how you make these vehicles and frames. They're relatively easy to maintain. You know, incorporating like active transport, you know, cargo bikes and stuff are becoming huge in the UK. I think catching on from a bit of the Scandinavian thing, they're still kind of quite expensive, but they're expensive relative to a car. But if you can do all the same things and it's the price of a pretty bottom-end used car, that seems like a pretty compelling argument to me. Um, I think that the grid thing is interesting. It always comes up as, oh, well, you know, we can't, we won't be able to manage to deploy all these electric vehicles because the grid isn't really good in, in these kind of markets. And I always think, well, that's an argument for better grid, right? We need to do these things simultaneously. It's not an argument against <laughs> decarbonization. It's just um, too difficult. <laughs> and But the, the crucial thing is infrastructure, isn't it? Basically, yeah. you've got to invest in the grid and then that allows, you know, people to not be worried about, you know, being able to charge their whatever. Uh, but it's these kind of concerns around, you know, can I find a charger if I live in a town? You know, what's the what's the charging situation like? If you remove that obstacle, then I think there would be a lot more uptake, I suspect. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Ed, well done uh, grasping that piece back uh, <laughs> from from Mr. Bean. Um, I didn't uh, really didn't expect it to go where it did, but uh, good segment nonetheless. Um, okay, well, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thanks again to Ed and to Andrew for joining me. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com. Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.